G20 drama, Cole, and Blinken's trip to Thailand. All this and more on today's episode of Southeast Asia Radio. I'm Simon Tranhutis on today's show. If you have a country like Cambodia weighing whether or not a country like Myanmar should be kept in, then you know that you've reached a certain level of hell of what situation you're in. That was Aaron Murphy, who chatted with Greg Poling to discuss the current situation on the ground in post-coup Myanmar and about her new book, Burmese Haze, U.S. Policy and Myanmar's Opening and Closing. Aaron recently joined the CSIS economics team as a deputy director and senior fellow, so I'm super excited to hear what she has to say. First, though, the headlines. Quick disclaimer before we start, we're actually recording a little earlier than usual. Today is actually July 15th, so about six days before the episode comes out. That's because both Greg and I, as well as our producer, Laurel, will be out next week. So we wanted to just make sure that we got you all some news, even if it may be overtaken a little bit by the following week's events. Okay, so with the housekeeping out of the way, we have a very special guest today in the studio with us to help me read the headlines. Megan Murphy, welcome to the studio. Megan has no relation to Aaron Murphy, our guest, but is a, for, is a former research intern with the CSIS Southeast Asia program, as well as currently a young professional program participant at the East West Center in Washington, D.C., just down the road. Megan, welcome. Thank you so much, Simon. This is the best day of my life. Oh, <laughs> it's the best day of my life. So yeah. thanks for uh, being in. It's great to see you again. All right, Megan, would you like to start us off with the news? Yes, 100%. So four ministers of the Group of 20 G20 countries attended a joint summit in Bali, Indonesia earlier this month. Discussions over Russia's invasion of Ukraine and Moscow's role in precipitating the global energy and food crises dominated the agenda, with U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken calling for Russia to unblock Ukraine's grain exports. Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov pushed back, stating that Western sanctions are to blame for rising food costs. Lavrov walked out of the meeting following increased calls for Russia to end the war in Ukraine. But the show must go on, Simon. That's right. Indonesia's foreign minister, Retno Marsudi, continued to emphasize that soaring fuel and grain prices were disproportionately affecting poor and developing countries and implored her fellow diplomats to develop collective global solutions. So Indonesia's push for multilateralism was also echoed in today's G20 finance minister's meeting. Indonesia called for ministers to work together with a spirit of cooperation because, quote, the world is watching. Failure to tackle the energy and food crisis, of course, would be catastrophic. While there continued to be some tension, the meeting largely focused on the food and energy crises weighing on an already brittle global recovery from the COVID-19 pandemic. And amongst the drama from the past sessions, there were no walkouts this time, Simon. Oh, thank goodness, thank goodness. Indonesia's continued efforts to mediate peace talks really underlines the country's interpretation of its G20 presidency this year. That's right, Megan. Speaking of Indonesia, I heard that the country is increasing coal output. That's right, Simon. Indonesia produces really cheap coal. So it's become the world's largest coal exporter, producing 663 million metric tons of coal a year. But just second to Indonesia is Russia. Russia's invasion of Ukraine has left many coal-importing countries, generally poor or developing countries, high and dry. Energy and Resource Minister 
Arifin Tasrif did not confirm by how much that target might be raised, but he did confirm that Indonesia will be able to increase output to help meet demand from countries that have lost supplies from Russia. Well, I'm glad they're getting help, but of course that doesn't seem to spell success for climate efforts across the region. In other news, Chinese Foreign Minister Wang Yi just wrapped up an 11-day tour through Southeast Asia and the Pacific, where he attended the 7th Lansang-Mekong Cooperation Foreign Ministers Meeting in Bagan, Myanmar, as well as the G20 Foreign Ministers Meeting in Bali, Indonesia. In a conversation with his Malaysian counterpart, Wang pledged that China would speed up consultations on the Code of Conduct and, quote, advocate true multilateralism and advance open regionalism. At the G20 foreign ministers meeting, he urged Southeast Asian states not to be used as, quote, chess pieces in major power rivalries. Meanwhile, of course, China claims exclusive access to almost the entire South China Sea, overlapping with several countries' exclusive economic zones. That's right, and often harassing its neighbors. So speaking of high-level diplomatic action in the region, U.S. Secretary of State Antony Blinken made his way to Bangkok shortly after the G20 meeting. Megan, what were some of the main topics of discussion? Glad you asked, Simon. Secretary Blinken first met with Thailand's Deputy Prime Minister Don Boramud Winai, who also serves as the country foreign minister. The two signed a communique on the country's strategic alliance, advancing partnerships in climate change, law enforcement, and security cooperation. On top of expanding cooperation, the communique also pledged to enhance information sharing and consultation to strengthen the resilience of critical supply chains. Secretary Blinken also met with Prime Minister Prayut Chan-o-cha and called on members of ASEAN to hold Myanmar accountable to the group's, quote, five-point consensus peace agreement. Secretary Blinken further noted that both ASEAN and China need to apply pressure to the Myanmar junta and support the country's return to democracy. Speaking of Myanmar, the country's central bank has suspended foreign loan repayments in an effort, officials say, will help defend the nation's dwindling foreign exchange reserves. Borrowers are to suspend the repayment of interest and principal of various foreign loans obtained either in cash or in kind. Well, this is just the latest in a series of steps that the military regime has taken to tighten their foreign exchange rules. After the 2021 coup, the nation's currency, the chiat, lost a third of its value against the dollar as foreign reserves held in the U.S. were frozen and multilateral aid was suspended, both key sources of foreign currency supplies. With Laos' debt obligation and Myanmar's dwindling foreign currency reserves, is Southeast Asia's economy in trouble? Well, I guess that's a news update for another day, Megan. And those are the headlines. Thank you so much, Megan, for stopping by. Up next, Greg's interview with Erin Murphy about her new book, Burmese Haze, so stay tuned. Hey, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, This week, we're changing things up a little bit. Alina Noor is out traveling in Southeast Asia. Uh, Bless her heart, just like I was a few weeks ago. And so today, we're going to have a guest host slash just guest guest, my new colleague, Aaron Murphy. Aaron was recently made the deputy director of the political economy chair here at CSIS. But more importantly, Aaron is a longtime Burma, Myanmar hand and a recent author of a book on the topic, which we'll get to. So I thought Aaron would be the perfect person to come in and help us talk about the current situation in in Myanmar. Aaron, thanks so much. Greg, thanks for having me. I'm happy to fill in and be a guest guest and a co-host and whatever role I can fill in for today. Well, so let me give a little bit of of background, the lay of the land for 
listeners, and then we'll just jump into it because I, I think there's an almost infinite variety of things we can talk about when it comes to the, the unfortunate crisis in Myanmar these days. So uh, as I'm sure most readers know, there was a coup, military coup launched by Min Aung Hlaing and, and the Tatmadaw, the Burmese military, last February, February 1st, 2021, in which they overthrew the National League for Democracy-led government of Aung San Suu Kyi. And as a result, clearly underestimating how much Burmese citizens had come to appreciate democracy, the Tatmadaw wasn't prepared for, for what happened. We had this national civil disobedience movement, members of the dissolved parliament that Pidong Suhutaw had set up, a parallel government that eventually became the national unity government now operating from from the borderlands we've had both the traditional ethnic armed organizations up in the highlands and these newer people's defense forces throughout both ethnic bamar majority areas and ethnic minority areas pop up to fight against junta forces and now this multi-front civil war bringing violence to to the lowlands in, in burma that hasn't been seen in decades the, the latest stats that, that we have from reputable organizations are that the crackdown by the juntas led to more than 2,000 non-combatant deaths. It's really hard to know how many have actually died in combat. More than 14,000 citizens have been arrested. Uh, the forces of the junta, the state administrative council, as, as they call themselves, have destroyed over 19,000 homes in intentional arson attacks to try to get people to put down their arms. The UN High Commissioner for Refugees says that almost 700,000 Burmese have been internally displaced and another 60,000 have fled to India and Thailand. And for those just trying to live their lives, the economy is in freefall. The, the currency, the chot, has lost about half of its value. And that's only being kept that high because the government's basically made it non-convertible. So you can't import anything or settle loans in, in dollars. So with all of that said, you – wrote a book at an interesting time. I did. You you published Burmese Haze, U.S. Policy and Myanmar's Opening, Dash Dash and Closing. Published it April this year, but I'm guessing most of the writing was done before the coup. Is that right? That is correct. Um, in fact, I submitted the transcript, I think it was end of December of 2020. So uh, we had to do quite a few rewrites in the last year or so. I assume you had to rewrite the title. <laughs> well, Burmese Haze was it was going to uh, stay, but um, yeah, the dash dash and closing was certainly a, a new addition. Yeah. So before we dive into the book, when you tell listeners how you got here, how how'd you end up writing a book about Burma? Yes, it's a, a sordid tale, if you will. But um, talking about a knack for timing, um, I was originally a Japan hand. I'd always wanted to study abroad and get involved in Asia issues once I graduated from college. So I originally started teaching English in Japan and then thought, you know, I'm going to go join the CIA, the Central Intelligence Agency, and, um, you know, save the world through, you know, spooky stuff. When I joined after grad school, I actually thought I was going to be working on alliance issues, but was given a very limited portfolio that wasn't really a national security priority. So I wasn't getting any opportunities to really cut any analytic chops. So in April 2008, I got my wish after pestering my management for months and months and said, hey, you know, there's this constitutional referendum coming up. We know that the vote is already preordained, but there might be some instances of violence. The last time Myanmar had an election was in 1990, uh, ended very poorly. 
very similar to how it ended in 2020. But we need you to watch out for it. Um, the Bush administration is pretty interested. So in mid-April of 2008, I started following the Myanmar issue. And three weeks later, Cyclone Nargis hit. And Cyclone Nargis was perhaps one of the most devastating natural disasters to hit the country. But I think it was also, in my humble opinion, a real pivotal point in the country's relationship with international organizations, with the United States, with ASEAN, and kind of led to the opening. But it more so for me led to what seems now like will be a perpetual interest, if not directly or indirectly into the country. So again, it was just a matter of luck for me, not so much anybody else. But, you know, and then it just kind of snowballed from there. Next thing I know, I'm on Secretary Clinton's plane on her first trip. I'm part of the team that started easing sanctions, which, you know, was uh, welcomed with great fanfare across human rights organizations and everyone else. But I mean, generally, I think it, it was the policy that we decided to take, started a consulting firm trying to push for responsible investment, um, and then returned back to the United States government with the DFC. And now CSIS has stolen me away. And despite being on the econ program, Greg here is uh, bringing me back into the Myanmar fold. So here I am today. I didn't exactly have to uh, lure you in or anything. I think you're more than happy to talk about your first love or whatever it is at this point. You know, it's interesting that you that you mentioned that you you came into this by way of of Cyclone Argus because you know Cyclone Argus for a lot of us I was I was in school at the time it, it was kind of our entree to realizing just how bad things were in in Myanmar how callous the junta was uh, I I don't remember the number exactly I think the official estimates from the government in Napidaw said over 100,000 lost their lives, um, but the real number is probably closer to seven or 800,000 at the low end because they basically just didn't care. They let people starve, you know, told people to figure it out. Among other things, it was a French naval ship off the coast threatening to come in and deliver aid, whether you like it or not, that finally forced the junta to let things in. And that same kind of disregard for life is, is on display now where this new junta is willing to, as I said, burn almost 20,000 homes in order to try to convince people to lay down arms and accept military rule again. How do you process that kind of bookending of this part of your career where you, you, you came in at, at, a, at a pretty terrible time in, in Burmese history, you, you oversaw the dawn of, of a new Burmese democracy, and now we see it less than a decade later already under potentially f- fatal threat? I, I don't know. Right. And using almost the same talking points, which is free Aung San Suu Kyi and the thousands of political prisoners, protect human rights, you know, fulfill the peace process and, you know, stop hanging out with the North Koreans. I mean, it's it's and recognize the results of the election. Um, You know, it's almost the same exact set of talking points that have been used after 1990 because it's we're back in the same situation, although I'd, I'd say we it might be a little bit worse. It's less a circle and I think more of a spiral where it like almost sort of comes right back around. But to say it's depressing is is almost, you know, not really capturing how how sad the situation is. And where I think it's different is this time you had a generation of young folks that had a real eye opening experience where for the most consequential part of their life, the most formative years of their life, they experienced at least some form of democracy 
and the idea of creating a career path and a future, and I'm going to study here, I'm going to do this, this is how I'm going to contribute to my country, and then have it torn away. Because at that point, you think, okay, my parents' generation, my grandparents' generation, you know, that's, that's so far away. Like, we were so deep into this experiment of democratization and development, there's no way we can go back. And it, it happened anyway. But, you know, the callousness, using the word callous, I think, is a, is a great term to use for this military but it, it, they seem to have taken it to yet another level here, where during Cyclone Nargis, I mean, I think it was Sothane, who was then the admiral for the Navy, and then was part of the Thane Sane government. If he didn't say it himself, he certainly repeated it later. But, you know, he was commenting that UN high energy biscuits and food supplies was totally useless because the people of Myanmar who had their homes and families ripped away in Cyclone Nargis could survive on rainwater and frogs. Like, come on. While, you know, the junta was fine playing golf up in Nebada. Well, it's almost the same thing here where you have COVID this time and you're preventing medical imports of medical grade oxygen and and COVID shots and like having any sort of real plan, public health plan for that. Now, on another sense of this, and you know that could probably be explored later, were countries willing to also provide assistance to the junta with fears that it would actually go um, into their hands and not to the population? There were those fears as well in Cyclone Argus, but sometimes you have to kind of look beyond those sorts of calculations and think about the people of Burma. But it's just incredibly depressing. And but you know we we do have some lessons learned, and hopefully you know this. We won't be using the same talking points even 20 years from now when another, you know, sham election shows up and it's whatever the Junta's party is that's going to stage manage the election. But it's um, a real, yeah, definitely bookended by terrible crises. So if we were to put the response of the U.S. and, and the wider international community in, you know, in a nutshell since the coup, I would describe it as passing the buck. Right, the, the coup happened uh, on February 1st, 2021. Of course, everybody condemned it. Outrage for Yong San Suu Kyi. And now let's see what ASEAN's going to do. What's, what are Myanmar's neighbors going to say about this? And ASEAN painfully negotiates the five-point consensus, as it's called, which basically said that the junta has, you know, all sides have to stop uh, violence, negotiate in good faith, have an ASEAN envoy come in who will have equal access to all sides, and provide access for humanitarian aid. And none of those five things has happened in the way that it's supposed to. There is an envoy. They're just not allowed to meet with both sides. And yet we continue now over a year later to keep saying, well, you know, we support the Ozan five-point consensus. We all know that that consensus is dead and buried and has no legitimacy, particularly among the opposition in Myanmar. But it makes it a lot easier for a U.S. and a European and a Japanese and so on governments who don't have any better ideas. And I, I suppose that that kind of muddling through might have been – understandable in the early months when the assumption, given Burmese history, was that the junta was going to crush this opposition movement in a matter of months at best. I mean, you know, who would have thought that they would burn 20,000 homes and people would still be fighting? But here we are. And now, you know, the two dry seasons have passed, which is the, the time when the Tomadol can bring their, their air and their artillery advantages to bear. And they're still losing ground. And, at, you know, on their best day, maybe they control 40% of the country right now. So given that, that we've got an opposition movement or multiple opposition movements who have been able to fight the army with basically homemade guns for the better part of, of a year and a half, 
is it time that maybe we rethink this muddling through policy? Is it is there an actual viable future in which the Tomadol doesn't win this thing? And maybe we should think about how to make that happen? I think we should. Muddling through, I mean, it's just like this repetitive, slow kabuki dance where we're just going back to what's comfortable, which is sanctions, punitive measures, and condemning the junta. That's all very easy stuff. And, you know, kind of once you get in that pattern, it's really hard to pull out of that. And it's a similar kabuki dance in Venezuela, Iran, Zimbabwe, North Korea. But I think it does require some creative thinking because while there are very large similarities between previous movements, whether it's the 2007 uh, monk uprising, I think the closest comparison that we can have here is 1988, where the protests really went on and off from 87 to 1990. So 87, when the demonetization happened by former junta leader Nate Wynn, everyone lost their savings. It started off as an economic movement, but then quickly morphed into pro-democracy movement, which is what we're seeing drive a lot of this today. And, you know, the junta or the country has always been involved in civil war. You know, what control the central government or junta had of the country, I think, has always been in question. There's always black zones, brown zones and white zones, black zones being where um, there was no Myanmar central government control. Brown is kind of mixed and white is where um, the central government did have control, which was mostly the central section of the country, which now they're strafing and bombing their own people. So I think we do need to be more creative and think what kind of tools, I mean, passing the buck to ASEAN. I mean, even the ASEAN now, you know, when Cambodia is lecturing you about human rights, we know that ASEAN is in even a tougher position than they've ever been, that this is the most intransigent junta that they have encountered, or, you know, we're, we're in a bit of a different situation. But um, there's certainly a piece of this puzzle these are their neighbors, they can decide to kick them out or keep them in. If you have a country like Cambodia weighing whether or not a country like Myanmar should be kept in, then you know that you've reached a certain level of hell of what situation you're in. But there, I think, are are interesting things that we can do and tools that we haven't used that we can consider. I think everyone just loves the idea of sanctions and squeeze, squeeze, squeeze. Well, and I think for the people who are fighting, like the PDF, the People's Defense Force and the National Unity Government, um, the government that's half exile, half in the country, are looking to what the United States is doing with Ukraine and wondering, why aren't we sending them weapons? Why aren't we doing this? Um, there's certain differences here, of course. I mean, would China see this as, you know, a, a, a military step? Could they then react in the South China Sea or Taiwan? So there's certainly other calculations that we have to consider. But we haven't thought of supporting the Gambia's role in its court case in the ICC. You know, the previous administration, the Trump administration, uh, was happy to to uh, sanction judges in the ICC. It doesn't look like we're doing that anymore. So can we work through these types of criminal courts and tribunals? That certainly has a psychological impact. For sanctions, I was talking to someone who does a lot of negotiations with detained persons and was thinking, okay, we sanction judges, home affairs ministers, and other folks that are part of the judicial system. And you know, not just sanction them, but should they leave the country, then we pick them up and throw them in jail. That puts the fear of God in them for traveling or sending their kids overseas to travel. We send Sylvester Stallone to the border. I mean, the Karen love him because he made them a key part of his Rambo 4 movie. And personally, in that movie, killed 300 uh, Tatmadaw soldiers. 
there are other things that we can do. And I think we just fall into old patterns because there's so much of a concern that if it looks like we're giving something for nothing, then it's just we're, we're rewarding the junta when I think we're only solely focused on how can we make sure the junta doesn't get any rewards without thinking of how can we help the people of Burma. There may be some you know, indirect benefit for the military, but we just got to get out of that way of thinking. So the Ukraine war has certainly sharpened this debate about why aren't we providing more explicit support to the NUG and the PDFs and the, the EAOs, the, the ethnic arm organizations who are fighting. And you do see articles written, probably quite feasible articles about, well, you know, if you gave a small fraction of the materiel and, and equipment that you're giving to the to the Ukrainians, to the, you know, PDFs and the AOs who are who are successfully holding off the top medal with hunting rifles and homemade guns, imagine what they could do with a small number of, you know, mobile artillery and, and anti-air systems. The problem with that, I suppose, is that one has to then argue that the National Unity Government has real legitimacy to rule the country. And the NUG does not currently control probably half of the People's Defense Forces, even in the lowlands and the Bamar majority areas. It does not control the ethnic armed organizations who have the most guns and the most power here and who are the real kingmakers and who have been fighting the top medal, I mean, in the case of the KNU, since immediately after World War II, one of the longest-running civil wars, um, the, the top medal, they call it insurgency, but civil wars in, in the world. And this was, I suppose, one of the fundamental problems of the previous national unity government. Aung San Suu Kyi's government at heart was a Bamar majority, a Burman-dominated government. She was seen as having betrayed the promises made to the ethnic armed organizations, which is why so many of them right now are sitting on the sidelines and not supporting the NUG and saying a pox on both your houses. Let the Burmans kill each other. Why should we get in on one side or the other? How... Do we, you know, how, how do we have any faith that if we were to arm the NUG and the PDFs and support them eventually t- retaking the heart of the country or forcing the junta to, to the table, that this won't just result in an even more high caliber civil war afterwards when a new Bamar dominated NLD led government retakes power? I think that's a a really valid concern. And I think you put it in great context because this isn't. Ukraine, Russia. This isn't even really Afghanistan where, you know, you have the Northern Alliance and whatnot. Like there are multiple anti-government, ideological based and ethnic based armed groups. And they're not all necessarily supportive of the NLD. Some of them are large narco armies that are in and of themselves problematic for the region and make it highly unstable. And they're also manufacturing their own weapons. So they're probably just fine. But when you look at the NUG, but you also look at, and I think to back up, they've done a better job in doing outreach to ethnic groups and other pro-democracy groups to try to address that fractiousness that I think is endemic in the country and has really been a problem in having that uh, consistent civilian control of the military, but also to have a parliamentary democracy is what befell the UNU government in the 50s and 60s. Um, and it continued to harm the NLD and their governance. The NUG is, is, has a bigger tent. That said, does anyone 
trust them to be able to go forward. I mean, you look at the NLD, they can empower, and suddenly they're talking about putting golden Aung San statues, Aung San Suu Kyi's father, and an independence hero only really to the Bamar because he fought with the Japanese and Japanese like mowed down Karen soldiers and Kachin and, and a lot of other ethnic minorities. Uh, they didn't want golden Aung San statues. So, you know, you can't just sweep that under the rug. So I could see a tenuous alliance at the beginning just to get the military out, but then the hard part comes. And where do those weapons go? And I think, you know, the threat of having a higher caliber civil war is absolutely there. That said, you know, you can't leave them to, to twist in the wind and you have to figure out what can we do? What is what is a better opportunity? Um, arming them, I think also, you know, gets to get to my earlier point, would really spook China. And of course, we can't make all of our policy about China, but there are bigger regional issues here at play that Myanmar is a part of. And if, you know, considering that some of these conflicts are happening on the China border and India, that could be potentially problematic and they could view it in a much different lens. I mean, we already know the Chinese are looking at the Russia-Ukraine situation quite closely and it, it could send a, a mixed message that the U.S. necessarily would not want to send to China in its support of Myanmar. You know, even before we were in this situation, the Chinese did not like former Ambassador Derek Mitchell to visit Kachin state <laughs> because he thought, you know, it was too close to their border and that that was their business, not ours, which is ridiculous. But there is that real threat, but we can we can operate in other ways. And I think, you know, the, the problems with governance is real. Um, there's always this question of, you know, Greg, you like green, I like blue, we can never agree, and therefore must be at war with each other. Or, you know, another anecdote that I've heard, um, which is, you know, what happens when you put to Myanmar in a room, you end up with three political parties, two separate ones, and an alliance. And that's something that I think needs to be addressed. The U.S. and others have great training programs in terms of like, how do you negotiate? How do things not become zero sum? There's a lot of folks that have left Myanmar mostly for their safety, but are still very, um, that are Myanmar nationalists or expats that want to help the NUG come up with credible strategies. It's, it's not just like going around saying everything's so bad. You can't live in opposition land. You have to be able to be ready to step into governance on day one. Um, so it's not just about arms. You have to think of like the longer term strategy as well. And I think that's something that uh, can be done, whether it's convening power, offering tools, defining what defi- democracy is going to mean to Myanmar. Is it a Bamar Buddhist majority or is it, you know, some more like Benetton coalition where you have multiple ethnic groups and whatnot? But I, I fear the higher caliber civil war. Um, there, there's not a lot of good answers here, but um, I, I think that that leads to potentially more violence in the future. Well, I, I, we've barely scratched the surface and certainly haven't provided any answers for U.S. policy, and I have to try to land this thing. Uh, we'll have to continue the conversation. But I think it, it's – I suspect that we both agree that the National Unity Government-led effort through what they call the National Unity Consultative Council, right, council that brings in all, all the ethnic armed organization, including Rohingya representatives, is probably the best hope for an eventual – political settlement that would be a real federal state that we could, you know, this would be the ideal, that this thing actually works. The NUG, in, in coalition with a bunch of the powerful ethnic armed organizations, forms a new federal charter through the NUCC that provides a blueprint for what a future Myanmar will look like, and then they can, with credibility, get more of the EAOs to join up and take the fight to the top of the and win on the battlefield, and all of that would be lovely. But 
There are enormous unanswered questions. We haven't even talked about the Arakan army, which now right. effectively controls most of Rakhine State, and are the ones who actually have a say in whether or not the Rohingya get a right of return, which is going to be a demand of most in the West for recognition of an NUG government, and the NUG yeah. does not have the power to guarantee their safety. So I, I guess I'm, I'm pretty confident that Tatmadaw is not going to win this thing on the battlefield. I'm also pretty confident the NUG can't without outside support and that they're not going to get it unless there's some kind of political breakthrough that doesn't seem imminent. Do you think that's fair? I think that's fair um, for any fans of the show Survivors, like, you know, Outlast, Out, whatever. <laughs> Obviously, I should have looked at their, uh, you know, tagline, but basically it's like you win by outlasting your opponents. And the Junta is quite good at that. But that doesn't mean that the opposition goes away. So, um, you know, I think we're going to have a pretty nasty stalemate unless there can be some sort of breakthrough. So, you know, it's um, I would agree with you. It's it's not a rosy assessment for sure. All right, Aaron. Well, thank you so much uh, for helping me me steer this thing with Adelina for a week. We will bring you back on some future episode to talk more about Myanmar with Alina here with me. And hopefully we'll have some better, um, well, some more optimistic prognostications by that point. But until then, thank you so much, and thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks so much. Thanks again for joining us for this episode of Southeast Asia Radio. Feel free to write us with any comments, questions, or feedback at searadio at csis.org. I promise we read those emails, and we will be sure to answer any burning questions that you may have. We're still a very new podcast, so do us a favor and subscribe, and give us a rating on iTunes or Spotify, or whatever streaming platform you listen to us on. Tell your friends, lovers, and oomphs about us. <laughs> I don't know what an oomph is, but I'm just going to move on. Uh, <laughs> Laura Vivitzan is our producer. Our intern is Nikki Arcado. Our co-hosts today were Greg Poling and Aaron Murphy. My name is Simon Tranhutis. And I'm Megan Murphy. And we'll see you in a couple weeks for another episode of Southeast Asia Radio.